Radio.ie hosts the Irish History Show podcast because history matters. Radio turns 100 years young this year. Radio's history is powered by Radio Archives. For radio archiving solutions from people passionate about radio, visit radio.ie. Welcome to the Irish History Show. My name is Cahill Brennan, and as always, I'm joined by my co-presenter, John Dorney, from the Irish Story website. You can follow us on Twitter, at Irish History Pod, or on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash the Irish History Show. If you get a chance, please take a moment to rate and review the show on iTunes, Spotify, or whichever platform you get your podcasts on, as it really helps us. This week, we're very pleased to be joined again by Dr. Brian Hanley, Brian has been a regular guest on the show, and if you'd like to hear some of the previous episodes we've done with him, you can go to our website, irishhistoryshow.ie. Today we'll be discussing an article Brian wrote for Irish Historical Studies. The Irish and the Jews have a great deal in common, Irish Republicanism, anti-Semitism, and the post-war world. Brian, you're very welcome to the show again. Thanks again for having me on. Brian, so your article is about the Irish Revolutionary period after the First World War, and there's two kind of big international backgrounds to this. One of them is the idea of national self-determination after the First World War, Woodrow Wilson's doctrine, where nations would define their own destiny, would become independent states. And this obviously affects Ireland, although Ireland's it's not accepted at the Versailles Conference. It also affects the so-called Jewish question in Eastern Europe, with the idea that Jews would somehow find their own self-determination whether it be in Palestine, as the Zionist movement wanted, or perhaps in Eastern Europe, as some other Jewish activists wanted. The other big background is the Russian Revolution, the communist revolution in Russia. And not in reality, but in the minds of, of many kind of right-wing thinkers, this was very much mixed up with the idea of international Jewry and the Judeo-Bolshevik conspiracy and so on that was somehow conspiring to undermine the Christian European order. So. As a kind of introduction to our discussion, can you talk about how these two contexts affected Ireland and Irish views of Jews in the post-World War I period? Yeah, I mean, you're, you're right. I mean, the big questions of self-determination and so on were inescapable, obviously, in the Irish context because Ireland was seeking independence. And then you also had the impact of the Russian Revolution, the creation of, of dozens of new states in Central and Eastern Europe and, and the upheavals that went with that. And the continuing violence there, because the period after the First World War saw intense violence across much of Central and Eastern Europe. The war didn't really end there until the mid 1920s in many ways, as well as the Russian Civil War, you had conflicts in the Polish-German border and, and so on. Amidst all that, you had a new wave of anti-Semitism. Most of Europe's Jewish population lived in Central and Eastern Europe. They're profoundly affected by the Great War, but also by the aftermath of the war. And many of them now find themselves um, living in new states, which are often inhospitable places for Jews, where there's a, a rise in nationalism, which not always, but often it's tinged with anti-Semitism, particularly, as you said, when it's linked to this fear of communism or Bolshevism. And a very, very prevailing view in the aftermath of the Great War across the world is that the Russian Revolution is inextricably linked with 
Jews, that Jews are a majority of the Bolsheviks, that it's Jews who make up the majority of communists in every country in Europe. It's Jews who are behind attempted revolutions in Germany and in Hungary and so on. Now, there's a whole argument again about the actual participation and the percentage of Jewish people involved, but certainly in the mind, not just of right-wingers or reactionaries, but also, you know, across the political spectrum, to some extent, there's this sense that the Jews are connected with the Bolshevik revolution. And along with that, you have long-standing ethnic tensions or social economic tensions, religious anti-Semitism as well. And all this becomes a very potent and very nasty mixture, really, that leads to a renewal of violence against Jews in the Ukraine, in Poland and elsewhere. So you've got pogroms in the years after the war, which are widely publicised across the world. So people in Ireland are aware of them. People in Ireland also are aware of the idea that the Jews are connected to the Bolshevik Revolution, because this idea is quite common in Britain and Ireland as part of the United Kingdom. And then you've got local uh, adherence to the view, like the, the Chewham Herald, for example, during the 1920s, arguing that Poland is facing persecution because the Jews want to destroy a Catholic nation and so on. So again, individuals as significant as Henry Ford, for example, would be a person who's not only holds these views, but pays for their publication. So Ford is paying for the publication of things like the Protocols of the Elders of Zion, a forgery which purports to show that the Jews are behind all these kind of revolutionary conspiracies. And you know, people in Ireland are aware of that stuff as well. I mean, I suppose that some of these contradictory ideas explain some of the contradictory ideas of Irish nationalists and Republicans towards Jews, because if the Jews are an oppressed nation like Ireland seeking for self-determination, and we have to remember that Jews at this time, you know, were not just a religious minority. They usually spoke a different language, Yiddish in Eastern Europe and so on. But if they're an oppressed nationality, then they have a lot in common with Irish nationalists. If, on the other hand, you buy into this idea that they're undermining European nationalities in favour of some international conspiracy, you know, you'll view Jews in Ireland in a different way. It's, it's a very complicated question, and, and you do have to kind of explain the context, I suppose, in, in, in the modern world to people, because firstly, casual anti-Semitism, distrust of Jews, particularly among Christians, and Ireland was not just a Christian country, but, you know, overwhelmingly a Catholic country, was very widespread. The Jews were believed to have been responsible for the death of Christ. And lots of ordinary people simply believe that without question. You also then had all kinds of stereotypes about Jews, which would have been widely accepted by people, you know, without, again, much controversy. That doesn't mean they were right to accept them because there were always people who contested that. But nevertheless, this was pretty widespread. And into this mix, then you, you get this new question of the idea of the Jews as being behind these huge social upheavals and being a threat to society itself. Now, to some extent, Irish Republicans and Irish separatists, and we're talking about Sinn Féin, the IRA and so on, we're talking about the period of the struggle for independence, don't buy into that very much because the same people in Britain who believe the Jews who are, are behind the Russian Revolution also tend to believe the Jews are somehow involved in the Irish Revolution as well. I mean, newspapers like the Morning Post, which is a, a popular right-wing newspaper in Britain, which constantly you know, pushes the idea of the Jewish Bolshevik conspiracy. The Morning Post's um, Irish correspondent, Cecil Bretterton, you know, argues that the ball was set rolling in Ireland as it is everywhere else by the international Jew. So you've got sections of the British right who believe that the IRA and Sinn Féin are connected 
not just with Bolshevism, but with the Jewish conspiracy as well. So quite obviously, lots of Irish Republicans don't buy into that because they're being accused of being part of this. So when the Morning Post publishes a book called The Cause of the World Unrest, which draws on a lot of Henry Ford's conspiratorial writings and, and writings from the protocols and so on, and argues again that you've got this great Asiatic conspiracy, which is being driven by the Jews, and it extends to Ireland and India and Egypt, all these parts of the British Empire that are experiencing movements for, for independence. The Freeman's Journal and the Irish Independent, so on mainstream Irish nationalist newspapers just dismiss it as fabrication, as propaganda, you know, because as they say, this is trying to claim that people who want independence are, are being manipulated by these conspirators and we don't believe it. You do begin to see elements of that, and we can talk about it later on, enter into Irish nationalist discourse a bit later on. But during the War of Independence itself, I think a lot of people would have instinctively rejected the idea of Jews as behind every revolution. Interestingly, Henry Ford's newspaper in the US by 1921 is also suggesting the Jews are behind the trouble in Ireland too. And as a result, Irish activists in the US become quite hostile to him because of that. So it's very much British right-wingers with more watered-down versions of the conspiracy then endorsed by more moderate conservatives and so on, and also Irish unionists who, who buy into elements of this idea that, you know, the Jews are behind the Bolshevik revolution and then are spreading this trouble throughout the empire in the interests of Bolshevism and Jewry and so on. A lot of Republicans at the time would have instinctively seen this as something their enemies were, were promoting and something that didn't see really ring true. Well, it's a very dismissive view of Indian nationalism and Irish nationalism and different oppressed movements throughout the British Empire that they're capable of seeing the problems within their own countries and striving for independence without some outside body manipulating them. Yeah, it is. And, and on the British right, there would have been quite a strong view that the Irish weren't really capable of organising a rebellion themselves or, you know, are seeking independence without manipulation. So, again, people like Bretherton and the Morning Post or some other figures on the British far right would have seen the Irish as racially incapable of independence and also as really incapable of you know seeking a self-determination without some other conspiratorial force backing them now this of course played into also racist politics in britain itself because there's very large irish catholic populations in britain and some elements on the british right feared that if irish catholics and also then jewish immigrants and others began to identify with the Labour Party, which is beginning to become a force, then this could upset the status quo in Britain. So you've got people who basically attribute Labour's emergence to an alliance between Irish Catholics and Jews who are both really foreign bodies in the British population as such. There's a whole booklet devoted to the topic published in, in the 1920s. So this is a view that's prevalent on the British right which echoes views which are very common on the right across Europe at the time. Now, many of those views are, are quite deadly in the sense that they do lead, certainly in parts of Eastern and Central Europe and in Germany and so on, to violence against um, Jewish people themselves. But you also then have the extra element within Ireland that the Jewish question isn't simply abstract. It's not just about people elsewhere because there is a Jewish community in Ireland itself. And that, of course, then adds an extra element to all this, 
because even though the Jewish community in Ireland was small, maybe 5,000 people, I think proportionately it was far more visible and far more well known than, for example, the Jewish community would be in Ireland a century on. They were the only large ethnic minority who weren't Christian in Ireland in the early 1900s. And therefore, they stood out. Certainly in Dublin, I think everyone would have been aware of Jews, even though they were only maybe 2,500 Jewish people in the city. So this adds an extra element to all these questions, I think, because there is actually an Irish-Jewish population. Talk about the Irish-Jewish community, the community in Dublin particularly, and, and other places like Limerick, and what type of experience would they have had assimilating into Irish society and experiences of anti-Semitism in the early 20th century? Yeah, it's a very big question. I have to say again, I mean, like everyone else writing history, there are people who are far more versed than you. And I think people like Natalie Wynne, for example, and Sean Gannon are doing some, Peter Hessian as well, doing some really cutting edge stuff on the experience of Irish Jews. Cormac O'Groda wrote a book on, on, on the Jews in Dublin maybe nearly 20 years ago as well. I think you have a Jewish community in Ireland which is relatively new in most cases. There's a, a longer standing Anglo-Jewish community as well, but most of the Irish Jews had arrived as immigrants from the 1880s onwards. Now, they're coming into an Ireland, this point is made, I think, by Peter Hesse, and, and, and it hadn't struck me before, but most people are leaving Ireland in the 1880s and 1890s. Ireland is experiencing population decline, as you know. The population of Ireland is halved during the 1800s. So Ireland is, is losing people, and you have inward migration from Jews from Eastern Europe who speak a different language, as John said a lot of the time, who are a completely different religion and a religion which has all the weight of Christian anti-Semitism against it. I mean, who are the Jews? To the average Irish Christian, oh, the Jews are the people who persecuted Christ and so on. That's, that's the way they, they think instinctively, who also then look different a lot of the time and who take up a particular position in trades like clothing, tailoring, furniture, and so on, which puts them in competition with Irish merchants as well. So from the early 1900s onwards, you'll see a lot of discussions about disease, immorality, peddlers and travelers, money lending, and so on, in which Jews are disparaged essentially as problems. And at the same time, you have Jews who become an established part of life in Dublin, and to a lesser extent in Belfast and in Cork and in Limerick as well. You have the famous boycott in Limerick in 1904, um, which is dubbed the pogrom later on, although for the Jews themselves, I think they would have known that it was quite different to what was happening in Eastern Europe. But nevertheless, there's a boycott, which is, has both social and economic factors, and is also driven by a Catholic priest called Father Cray, a redemptist priest who'd been in France, and who I think had um, become very influenced by French anti-Semitism, which is rampant in the, the 1890s. And many Jews leave Limerick in the aftermath, but not all of them. Again, actually, again, and, and again, Natalie Wynne, I think, is writing about this and, and Sean Gannon. So, you know, they'll have more knowledge on it. But the idea, you know, that the Jews all left Limerick after 1904 is just not true. But nevertheless, this is quite a, an infamous occasion. It's discussed, for example, in the House of Commons. Limerick nationalists are very defensive about it. The Home Rule MP defends his constituents. The Catholic Church, again, is very hesitant to condemn its priests. 
And it's seen as basically a protest against money lending and against exploitation of the poor by the Jews. And, you know, less than a century later, the Labour TD for Limerick, Stevie Coughlin, is still given that line in the early 70s. I remember the, the Limerick leader in the 1980s and 1990s, you know, arguing that the Dublin media, which is a familiar trope in Limerick, were basically using this small insignificant occurrence as a way to insult the city. So, you know, to the outside world, this might seem appalling, but to people in Limerick, it's, it's at the time seen as just, you know, justifiable protest against this alien community. And all these questions really are there in the background when we talk about Jews in Ireland in that period. Again, in day-to-day life, you've obviously got lots of interactions between Jews and non-Jews and people who get on and people who don't get on and all the rest of it. But there is, I think, a casual and prevalent anti-Semitism in the background to a lot of these interactions, which would make the Jewish community, I think, aware of potential vulnerability in a time of upheaval. And I guess before we get into the exact relations between the Irish community and the Republican movement, another factor to consider in the background is the Balfour Declaration of 1916. So in theory, this might have motivated some people to see British imperialism and the Jews as being in league in some way. Yeah, I mean, it does. Again, a further complication in this is that the Jewish immigrants from the 1880s, 1890s that are leaving um, parts of the Tsarist Empire and so on, and are leaving both political and religious and, and social economic persecution, they're traveling across Europe. A lot of them settle in the United Kingdom of which Ireland is a part. And as far as they're concerned, they're happy that they're being given refuge in the United Kingdom. So they're not instinctively anti-British. In fact, the opposite. Many believe that the way to assimilate is to be loyal to British society. So you would have had Irish Jews who were strongly unionist in politics. Now, again, in Belfast, you would have seen that. But you would have seen it to an extent in Dublin as well. And again, some would have found that Irish Protestants were less um, hostile in some ways than Irish Catholics. So they would have, if they could, you know, have gone to schools which were largely Protestant or gone to Trinity and so on. So there were Irish Jews who politically would have been unionist because they were living in the United Kingdom as far as they were concerned, and they weren't being subject to anything like the level of persecution that they experienced in the countries that they left. Now, in the First World War, for example, again, many British Jews serve in the military and regard, you know, that as giving evidence to British society of their loyalty. Complicated by the fact that by then you've also got a large poorer Jewish population who'd come from Eastern Europe who are suspected of disloyalty. And people forget that in 1914, when Britain goes to war, the Times newspaper, for example, puts up a big hue and cry about the potential disloyalty of the German Jews. And it sees Germany really as a country which is, is very influenced by the Jews and therefore Jews in Britain might be sympathetic towards the Germans. And a lot of British Jews want to you know, combat that view by showing their loyalty to Britain. So it's the case, for example, that during 1916 and during the War of Independence, you would have had British servicemen in Ireland who were Jewish, you know, and you would have had Jewish black and tans and auxiliaries as well, because they simply would have you know, been serving in, in the British military at the time. And that tends to be noted, you know, where a British politician or statesman is Jewish, Irish nationalists tend to mention that when they criticise them. And that's another aspect of politics at the time, that 
A Protestant or a Catholic isn't always defined by their religion when they make a political statement, but a Jewish person, no matter what their politics, their faith tends to be mentioned when people criticize them. And then your, your question about Balfour, of course, is correct. There's a growing Zionist movement among European Jews, a belief that the solution to their problems of persecution will lie in them having their own state. They think that that might come about in the aftermath of the Great War as well. The British and, and the French, uh, uh, when they're drawing up the Middle East, um, decide that, you know, that Palestine is going to be the location uh, of this. So there is a sense after the war sometimes, and it, 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 it is mentioned, you know, that the Jews now see Britain as, as their saviour, but that's always complicated by the fact that Zionism is contested by Jews, that not all Jews are Zionists, that many Jews are involved in the labour movement or in other movements which are, are not necessarily pursuing that path. So there is, you know, an argument that the British are going to look after the Jews. And that does come into this discussion at times. But it's, it's, it's not always as, as dominant as, you know, you might retrospectively think in terms of how people view these things. Yeah, and just, I mean, on, on that, I mean, not even all what you might call Jewish nationalists, like there's the Bund movement, for example, in Eastern Europe, and their goal is not Zionism at all. They think that's crazy. They want, you know, self-government within the Russian Empire, within whatever yeah. the country they're in. So even in, among Jewish nationalists, it's not a, it's not a good sense. Yeah, I mean, one of the great, I mean, if we talk about the Irish, and we do, or we talk about the British, and we do, at the same time, we have to check ourselves. And when people talk about the Jews, I mean, in Europe, and not just in Europe, in North Africa, in the Middle East, you've got very divergent Jewish communities. In Germany, for example, you had, up till the war at least, a highly assimilated, educated population who generally saw themselves as German and who serve in the German army during World War I. Thousands of Jews are awarded medals. Again, you, you know, it's a true story. Hitler's commanding officer in World War I who recommended Hitler for his medal was, was Jewish, you know. German Jews are assimilated, but Jews in the Russian Empire are often poor, often segregated, subject to all kinds of restrictions. Jews in North Africa, again, very different. Jews in France, historically, and in Britain, different. And then this wave of immigration from the East transforms those communities. And the idea that the Jews as a body all shared a common interest, um, Zionists would have argued that in some ways. They said, we, we all should adhere to this idea. But Jews were divided politically, divided economically, divided socially, often didn't like each other, you know. The established Anglo-Jewish community is, is very wary of the immigrant Jews of the East End of London, you know, sees them as people who are going to give the Jews a bad name, you know, uh, because of their politics or because of the, the way they, their poverty or the way they conduct themselves. Ireland's different in many ways because the Jewish community here is, is, is much smaller doesn't tend to have these sharp political divergences, although it has some, doesn't have a very big working class, which is unlike New York, for example, where the Jewish working class are a major factor in political and, and social life. But when you talk about the Jews, you're, you're talking about very different people across Europe and elsewhere, often who are very divided politically. But anti-Semites, they're all somehow involved in this conspiracy, or they're a danger for other reasons and you know elements of that are being played out in Ireland too. Now as we discuss anti-semitism and the republican movement at the time somebody who always crops up in discussions about anti-semitism is one of the leaders 
of Irish republicanism and separatism and the founder of Sinn Féin, Arthur Griffith. And there is debate over just how anti-Semitic Griffith was. What's your take on it, Brian? Yeah, I mean, there's been, as you say, a lot of debate about it. And uh, I mean, yes, he was anti-Semitic and he shared with a lot of political figures a suspicion of Jews as a people who were not national, who were cosmopolitan and who therefore were not going to be loyal to Ireland um, in a way that people should be. He also then, and this again is one of the, the complications of life, knew Jews and was friendly with individual Jews and became something of a sympathiser with the Zionist idea. Now, as I say, there's a debate about this and Colm Kenny has argued very strongly that Griffith's anti-Semitism has been overplayed and that the anti-Semitism of a whole range of other people is ignored. I think he has a point about other people's anti-Semitism being ignored, but there's no doubt that Griffith bought into many anti-Semitic tropes. And these predated the Russian Revolution. So again, you don't find many Irish Republicans in the revolutionary period believing Jews are behind Bolshevism, for example. That kind of comes later. But what you do find at the time of the Boer War, for example, and it's um, repeated later on, is that Irish nationalists are overwhelmingly sympathetic towards the Boers. And you have a view that the British are being driven by the Jew merchants of Johannesburg and so on in their war against the Boers. You also then have Irish sympathies. When Britain and France are rivals, Irish national sympathies are with France. When France is shaken by the Dreyfus affair, Irish nationalists tend to ally themselves with the French right. So Maud Gaunt buys into this because she's got lots of contacts with France, for example. So in Griffith's newspapers, there's articles in the United Irishman and so on that are written by other people, Oliver St. John Gogarty and others, which are viciously anti-Semitic and which use the worst kind of anti-Semitic language of the time. And Griffith prints that. He also then publishes articles by people like Ave de Blackham, who's a, a Republican intellectual, separatist intellectual, kind of forgotten now, but important at the time because he's trying to develop the Sinn Féin idea as he sees it, who argues that Israel is the triumph of Sinn Féin, that the Jews have given us the best nationalist literature, that they're attempting to revive the Hebrew language, for example, which was largely, wasn't dead, but it wasn't what most Jews spoke, and that therefore this gives Irish nationalists a model of how to revive the Irish language. So you've got these contradictory aspects. And again, I mean, the you could have anti-Semitic views, but be pro-Zionist, because you could believe the Jews were entitled to a homeland, which would mean the Jews would then leave your country. And I think Griffith, buys into lots of that. But I wouldn't want to single him out because there's lots of other separatists who, who are, are anti-Semitic too. And I think that Griffith certainly is an anti-Semite in terms of those politics and also shows the contradictions of the age by being able to then be friendly with individual Jews. Well, I think we should mention as well the Irish Jews who were involved in the separatist movement and during the War of Independence too. Yeah, and, and, and there are several, although that can be exaggerated, I think, sometimes for effect in terms of, of a kind of romanticization of Irish Jews. And certainly, even at the time when Irish Republicans went to the United States, for example, they tended to argue that Ireland was the one place in the world that had never persecuted the Jews and the Jews were, were perfectly happy there. And that view tends to be, you know, repeated sometimes 
And it's not quite true, uh, of course. But you do have individual Jews who are sympathetic to home rule. You've got an attempt to set up an Irish Jewish Home Rule Association, which is pretty small. You've got people like the Altmans or in Dublin Corporation who co cooperate with Sinn Féin, kind of the radical end of the of the Home Rule Party. Then you also have individuals like Estella Solomons, the artist who's involved with Common Amon. Michael Noyak, who's quite a significant figure in terms of work for Sinn Féin as a legal advisor and also as confident of Michael Collins and Pierce Beasley and others and, and is behind the scenes involved with the IRA's kind of underground network in Dublin during the War of Independence. Most famously, of course, Bob Briscoe, Robert Briscoe, who's involved in gun running from Germany and also then involved in the anti-treaty network in the United States during the Civil War and goes on to be a long-standing Fianna Fáil TD and, and Lord Mayor of Dublin as well, who's probably the best known Irish Jew and is sometimes held up then as kind of a signifier really for the Jewish community during the War of Independence. When in reality, I think a lot of Irish Jews kept their heads down because they didn't know. In, in lots of Europe, new states are coming into being, empires are being broken up, but they're not always very comfortable places for Jews. So what's going to happen in Ireland, they don't know. Um, you do have again, and the bureau statements and the pension files are, are very interesting in terms of where you do have people mentioning Jews who are hiding people on their own or hiding weapons or who are sympathetic. And even some, I mean, I, I, I quote a letter from Count Plunkett to De Valera in which he's very hostile towards Jews. But in the course of that letter, Plunkett then says, in Dublin, the Jews are friendly, even sympathetic towards us, which would suggest that, and it's, I think it's significant coming from him because he doesn't, you know, he's anti-Semitic, that there is a level of sympathy among Dublin Jews for Sinn Féin and the separatist movement. But at the same time, you know, quite clearly, there's unionist sentiment too, and there's probably also sentiment of people wanting to get on with their lives and are, who are just worried what all this upheaval is going to lead to. So we delved through some of the newspaper reports at the time and also then things like the pension files and so on. Little stories will turn up and you'll have people expressing anti-Semitic opinions or mention of Jews who are working for the British and so on or part of the, the British administration. And then you'll also have people expressing positive sentiments towards Jews or mentions of Jews who are in some way involved with separatism. But I think it's, it's a relatively small number of people, but of course it deserves far more investigation, I think, rather than simply taken for granted that they're either for or against. I think we've, we need to, 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 to do more work on that. Yeah, I mean, Bob Briscoe in his memoir, which I think is a, partly a work of fiction, I suspect, but Bob Briscoe's um, certainly makes the connection between the Irish are an oppressed nationality and so are the Jews and he's very pro-Zionist and so on. Um, how common was that kind of attitude among Irish Jews? Yeah, it's a, it's a bit hard to tell, to be honest with you, John, because that case is certainly made by Jews in the United States, you know, because in the, the big Irish Republican efforts in America, you do have Jews who speak at De Valera's rallies, at rallies for McSweeney and so on during the winter of 1920. You've got rabbis and also Zionist figures who address Irish race conventions and so on. And both Irish and Jewish speakers do tend to reinforce each other in terms of 
we are two oppressed nations, we are two oppressed races that are coming into our own and we should support each other. And in the US, I mean, there is quite a bit of evidence, for example, that Jews are quite prominent among donors to the Dáil Bond and so on, you know, because obviously most people who donate are probably Irish or Irish American, but a lot of other Americans do as well. And Jews kind of stand out in a lot of the press coverage as having been quite sympathetic to the Irish cause there. So there's some evidence of that. I find it less so in Ireland during that period, actually. But again, maybe there is more evidence of it that I haven't, I haven't seen. Certainly in the United States, there is something of an alliance, if that's not too, too strong a word. But it's certainly mentioned in both the Irish-American press and in the, the mainstream press, you know, that the Jews are identifying themselves with the Irish cause. The other thing I should, suppose I should say is that, you know, the British military intelligence and so on note these things too. The head of British military intelligence, what becomes one of the intelligence branches, Basil Thompson, he believes, you know, absolutely that Bolshevism is a Jewish conspiracy. And he sees them as, as being involved in these plots right across, not just the empire, but the world. So they would be taking note of this too and reading a lot into it. But certainly in the United States, you do see cooperation. You see it in Britain, to a lesser extent, mainly in the labour movement, I would say, on the left, or sometimes in subterranean ways. Briscoe's missions in Germany are, are generally secretive. So he's dealing with a lot of very interesting people, including very right-wing Germans, you know, to try and get weapons. In Britain, the IRA are dealing with, in some cases, criminals. And so you do have Irish activists in London who are dealing with the, the Jewish underworld, for example, which is more through personal contacts than political contacts. But again, it's, it's evidence of, of interaction in a kind of the context of a diaspora where both these communities are, are, are not native to Britain or at least are seen as not native and who do have contacts with each other. I mean, the Irish and the Jews lived near each other, at least in parts of, of the East End of London, for example. Well, I think that's something that we covered in our last interview as well with you, Brian, about policing and Irish Republicans and the contacts between gun runners in Britain, uh, IRA, with having connections with the criminal underworld. Yeah, and again, it's something that wouldn't really have been spoken about very much, is mentioned very little in Republican memoirs. And therefore, there's a huge debt here to the Bureau and, 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 and to the pension files and so on for making this accessible because it's really, I think there's one throwaway line in Joe Good's book, and that's about it in terms of the contact between the IRA and criminal networks, you know, and there's probably more to be said on that as well. But... I think, um, I mean, a further complicating question in all this, of course, is that critics of Irish republicanism in Britain, uh, particularly, and, and among some Irish unionists, would have seen Eamon de Valera as quite a suspicious character. And there are always a lot of questions and insinuations about why the leader of the Irish Republic is a Spaniard, for example, as he would have been called, or whether or not de Valera was Jewish. And that's quite widespread during the revolutionary period in the right-wing press and also among people like Neville McCready, the British commander in Ireland, refers to de Valera as a Cuban Jew. He's referred to as a, a Maltese Jew in the Belfast newsletter and so on. So it's sometimes forgotten today that de Valera's ethnic background 
which in the United States, you know, is both a plus and a minus. Um, but in terms of, of criticism of, of Irish Republicans, you do have people who insinuate that this is how the Jews are, in fact, involved in the Irish Revolution. Their leader is a Jew, or at least a half-Jew. And um, believe it or not, Alfred Rosenberg, who's one of the ideologists of the Nazi party in Germany, he writes in 1921 or 22 about Ireland. And, you know, he says the problem is in Ireland that the Bolsheviks have their hand in the trouble there through de Valera, who's a Jew. So, you know, this is, again, quite a widespread view at the time. I mean, it's quite bizarre because de Valera didn't have any Jewish heritage at all. Well, I mean, the, the, the point about anti-Semitism a lot of the time is that it is quite bizarre and that people are described as Jews who don't have any Jewish heritage. But the point is, of course, that people believe it if they want to. And I suppose one of the things that interested me when I was looking at this area was that um, you'll be familiar with Morris Manning's book on the blue shirts, which is really the first book on the blue shirts written back in 1970. And in it, Morris Manning says, you know, the blue shirts weren't anti-Semitic. Now that's not true, but nevertheless, he says they weren't. And they really couldn't have been because anti-Semitism didn't really exist in Ireland because there were very few Jews here. Now, you can have no Jews and have very prolific anti-Semitism. It doesn't depend at all on having a large Jewish population or even a very politically active Jewish population for anti-Semitism to exist. And it also then ignores how casual anti-Semitism, the use of the term Jewman, for example, in a pejorative way, saturates lots of just popular culture in Ireland in the 20s and 30s. It doesn't mean that, that it's genocidal anti-Semitism. It doesn't mean that people are going around driven all the time by this fascination with the Jews. They're not. But you wouldn't have to search very far if you look at political meetings, say, in Ireland in the early or mid-1930s, particularly meetings involving Fine Gael or the Blue Shirts to find references to De Valera the Jew man or Briscoe the Jew or the Jews as communists. You know, it's very, very common. It's in discourse all the time. So you've got this strange kind of situation where the Jews in Ireland are a small community and they're really not that important in the great scheme of things. But you do have people who ascribe a lot of importance to them. So you can multiply that when you get to mainland Europe or, or even to Britain and the United States in the way that some anti-Semites would think. Yeah, now the great break, of course, in, in Irish Republican history in this period is the treaty split and the Civil War, and it breaks up people who were previously friends and stuff like that. It also, I suspect, though, kind of shatters the imagined world of Irish nationalists, so where previously they could imagine unity, now it's all division and difficult to understand. And what's interesting about your article, Brian, is that some people tried to explain this by use of anti-Semitism, didn't they? Yeah, I mean, what you find is the Judeo-Bolshevik myth does begin to get a bit of a hold on people on the pro-treaty side, where what the British and some unionists had been saying about de Valera, that he's a foreigner, is now taken on board by the pro-treatyites. Now, Michael Collins isn't an anti-Semite, right? But, but during the last doll debate where de Valera and co leave, Collins shouts after them, foreigners all, Englishmen, Americans, and so on. And that view becomes very prevalent, of course, that de Valera isn't really Irish at all. And then for a section of the pro-treatyites, that is translated into a deeper kind of xenophobic belief that he's a Spanish Jew or that he's half Jewish. As a historian, you've got to, you know, maintain balance and all that. And as you know, I'm, I'm of course, very balanced. But um, 
there's people you really come across and you think they're they're not nice individuals. John Devoy, who's a really significant figure for a long time, Devoy has rancid opinions about Jews in particular, and he really popularizes on the pro-treaty side, I think, initially. Um, and he does it before the treaty because he falls out with De Valera during 1920. He's always talking about the half-breed Jew, De Valera. And De Valera's temperament is not Irish. He's a Jew and all that. And that crosses the Atlantic. And you do find then elements of the pro-treatyites begin to, to kind of make that argument. Now, you had people in the Republican movement like Gavin Duffy, for example. During the treaty debates, he says, we, we never got a fair hearing in Britain because the Jew firms control the press and so on there. And Gavin Duffy's anti-Semitic, Charles Bewley, the diplomat, um, is anti-Semitic in Germany and, and, and so on. So you do have people who are already anti-Semitic and who then take the pro-treaty side, continue to hold those views and begin to kind of explain the trouble in Ireland because again, the, the, the pro-treatyites begin to see Bolshevism and anarchism and so on as maybe a factor at least in the anti-treatyites activities. But, you know, on the anti-treaty side, you've got people like J.J. O'Kelly, um, Schellig and so on, who are also anti-Semitic, so who obviously don't believe the Jews are behind them, but who still think the Jews are behind Britain and maybe then behind the free state too. So anti-Semitism, of course, is very flexible and very versatile, and you can have people on opposing sides of the argument who are still anti-Semitic. But certainly you begin to see it in treaty discourse, and that really, of course, comes of age, I think, in the blue shirt era, where you do see a lot of explanations of De Valera as being under the, you know, the control of, of the Jew Briscoe and, and so on. And a lot of the time that's rhetorical. It's being said at meetings to, to rile people up. But it's said so often that you have to wonder how many people you know, kind of half believed it or you know, saw some kind of truth in that kind of rhetoric. Yeah, I mean, you know, the mental world of conspiracy theories is kind of interesting. There's kind of one on the anti-treaty side of the Civil War as well, where they talk about, you know, imperialists, Freemasons, which is like that there's some sort of plot against Irish nationality and the established classes and stuff. And the pro-treaty side, they seem to latch on to a kind of anti-Semitism. But there's one particular strange incident, Brian, I want to ask you about, which is the murder of a number of Jews in Dublin by pro-treaty soldiers in 1923. Yeah, and again, I mean, John, you've you've written about it in your book on the civil war and it's it, it's well it's a dreadful incident and i suppose katrina goldstone again has written about it as well and i mean she makes the point that the limerick boycott or the limerick pogrom has a popular recognition a lot of people have heard of those events in limerick nobody was seriously hurt in limerick and that's not to to downgrade the the significance of, of a boycott against jewish people there but in Dublin in 1923, there is targeted attacks on, on Jewish people in which two men are shot dead in separate incidents. And there's also attempts to shoot others. And this is carried out by a group of Free State Army officers led by a man called James Conroy, who'd been a member, I think, of the squad. He's certainly very involved in the Dublin IRA in the group around the squad during the War of Independence, had a reputation, I think, in one of the pension statements he's referred to as the wild chap. And they do target Jews for anti-Semitic reasons, whether it has a personal origin or not, um, there's, there's questions about. But this is an attempt to kill Jewish people because they're Jewish. And they kill two Jewish men in the space of, of a couple of weeks in Dublin. And it does cause a big outcry at the time and people are wondering what's going on and there's a lot of fear. And then it's kind of buried because even in memoirs within the Jewish community, and I remember actually asking Joe Briscoe, 
who was Bob Briscoe's son uh, about this year, 20 years ago or more. And his, his view was that they'd been shot by soldiers after curfew and mistaken identity and so on. That, you know, this wasn't really popularized as an, an anti-Semitic attack. It was kind of buried both in the Jewish community and elsewhere, even though it's raised in the doll in 1934 when there's a big row about um, the wearing of uniforms, Bill and Fianna Fáil are trying to ban the blue shirt, essentially, and insults are being thrown left, right and centre. And, and Sean McEntee says, well, you know, who murdered Can? Emmanuel Can is one of the men who's, who's shot dead, you know, and he says the people, the people who murdered him are wearing blue shirts today. So there is a kind of level of knowledge that this happened. It's covered up again, to some extent at least, even though the, the guys do a, a runner to America, they do eventually come back, I think. And it's, you know, the, the pension files again reveal quite a bit about at least how this was viewed at the time. But there was, people knew that Free State officers were involved in killing these men and nothing was really done about it. It was kind of buried deep. But it's interesting that it's far less well known than, for example, the Limerick boycott. Now, I think if the anti-treaty IRA had killed Jews because this is all part of culture wars in many ways, that would be have been raised earlier and would be more widely known. I don't think it's, you know, I think over the next couple of years when we get to the Civil War and all the rest of it, we're going to be doing a lot of distangling of unpleasant things. So I think it'll, it'll probably be discussed there again. But that again, in, in European terms, ex-servicemen attacking Jews um, is, is common in a lot of countries. And again, it does, within the Jewish community, I think it would have suggested a level of vulnerability um, in the post-war period. To be fair, the mainstream, you know, of, of the establishment and also the anti-treaty movement don't target Jews and whatever they might think personally, anti-Semitism isn't part of the driving forces of their ideologies. But again, Jews might have felt quite vulnerable in that period as they did across much of Europe at the time. Yeah, I mean, Michael Noyk, who you mentioned, actually acts as a, a lawyer for the pro-treaty side during the Civil War period. Yeah, again, of course, I mean, I'm sure the Jewish community has Briscoe's anti-treaty, but lots of other Jews would have, I think, probably been happy that the violence was stopping and would have said, OK, there's going to be a, an independent Irish state and we'll see how we, we fit into that, you know, so I'm sure lots of them would have been pro-treaty too. But... That's the story of that of that community and all the rest of it is really, it's very important, but it's not something that I'd be able to speak with, with vast authority on in comparison to say to what separatists and, and, and radicals were saying at the time and how they're influenced by global trends. I suppose we sometimes forget when we talk about Irish nationalism or Irish republicanism or Irish separatism, it's always influenced by global trends, you know. Irish republicanism quite obviously is influenced by, by France in the 1790s and by, by Europe in the 1840s and again in the 1860s. And a lot of radicals in the early 1900s are reading European material or it's being relayed to them. So, you know, people like Thomas Ashe or J.J. O'Kelly and so on express anti-Semitic views, which I think are coming from European anti-Semitism and then they're embracing them and other people are probably rejecting them but but they're not writing about that or talking about that so we're not as familiar there are republicans who you know edward maloney again who's active in the united states dr edward maloney he in 1920 after the chewham herald publishes a lot of this kind of 
stuff that's influenced by Henry Ford. He writes to the Tomb Herald and says, you know, this is just a rehash of the anti-Catholic conspiracies of the 1700s. In the United States, we've got rabbis and Jewish figures addressing Republican rallies, Irish Republican rallies, and you're repeating this kind of British imperialist propaganda, and this is, you know, you shouldn't be doing this. So, I mean, there are people who, who confront anti-Semitism as well. But at the same time, it is a very prevalent form of prejudice that becomes less acceptable for a very horrific reason because of the Holocaust and because of the Second World War. But sometimes people think as soon as the news of the Holocaust becomes widely known in the late 40s that everybody stops being anti-Semitic. It takes decades, really, for that to happen. You know, in the 1940s, despite the news of what had happened in Europe, you still have quite widespread levels of anti-Semitism at a popular level, not just, you know, Ireland's a, a separate case in some cases, but in 1947, the worst anti-Semitic riots in British history take place. That's two years after the end of the war. You've got anti-immigrant sentiment across Europe, which doesn't want to allow Jewish refugees in, even though people know that they've just experienced a genocide. So sometimes we can be so shocked by the open expression of anti-Semitism 100 years ago that we don't realise that this was not, this was not unrespectable. This was, this was a, a form of prejudice that people like Archbishop McQuaid, uh, he might be a bad example because, you know, people these days would say, oh my God, you know, he's, you know, a baddie, but he's a very respectable person, you know, but he has anti-Semitic views about the Jews and so on. Winston Churchill, in 1920, on the one hand, sees the Jews as a dynamic force potentially in Palestine and, and so on, but he also sees them as being behind the Russian Revolution and writes about how there's a battle for the soul of Jewry, that Jews are, are quite clearly central to socialism and anarchism across the world, and that this is a very dangerous phenomenon. You've got that repeated ad nauseum by all sorts of people in those decades. And it doesn't stop just because in 1945, people become aware that there's been a genocide. Actually, it takes a long time for people to realize that anti-Semitic prejudice might mean nothing on a day-to-day -day basis. It's just a prejudice held in somebody else's, in somebody's head, but that it obviously has a knock-on effect. The Irish far-right party, Altrina Hashery, kept their highest vote in the wake of the Second World War as well, don't they? Yeah, they do. And of course, again, you, you would have to say that there would have been a lot of people in Ireland who'd have been sceptical about the news from Europe and who simply wouldn't have believed um, that the stories about the dead camps and so on were true. Alterini Ashery say that, but other people, you know, talk about Brian O'Higgins, the, uh, the veteran kind of Sinn Féin propagandist, he, he says, you know, we're hearing these stories, but what could have been, you know, could they have been worse than what happened to the Irish in 1798 and so on, or during the famine? So that would have been a, a view that, again, I don't know how widely it was held, but certainly it would have been expressed publicly at the time. And, and if we go back further, I mean, the quite separate from the political movements, you had a Catholic intellectual tradition in Ireland people like Father Dennis Fahey, Father Edward Cahill and so on, who saw Jews as, usually allied with Freemasonry, for example, as threats to the established religious order. And their booklets would have been widely on sale among Irish Catholics. Whether everybody read them cover to cover and believed what they read in them is another question. But, you know, 
that was being expressed widely and publicly. So what it means, of course, that in the 1930s, when news begins to come from Germany or elsewhere about the persecution of Jews, that's publicised and people are becoming aware of it. But you've got people who are then saying, well, they wouldn't be persecuted unless they'd done something or Germany was treated very badly or aren't they behind communism? The Irish Times, for example, in 1933, to give you a non-Catholic example, is condemning the first anti-Semitic measures introduced by Hitler's government, but in the course of condemning them says, of course, it is the case that as in Russia, the Jews were the brains behind communism in Germany. You know, it takes for granted that there's truth in what the Nazis are saying, even if it doesn't particularly like what the Nazis are doing. And then at the, I suppose, the, the governmental level, you've got people like Charles Bewley in the diplomatic service, who in 1920-21 is criticizing Bob Briscoe behind his back, you know, and is saying, this guy's a shady character, we shouldn't trust him. He, in 1933-34, said, yeah, the Germans are introducing all these new laws, but to be honest, the Jews are bringing it all on themselves. And this in government is being, well, should we allow these refugees and then will, will they be troublesome? So, of course, there is a knock-on effect of these kind of pernicious views. But at the same time, lots of people can hold them and it doesn't really mean anything because, you know, in their day-to-day -day life, they don't ever meet any Jews or, or they don't have any access to, to power and so on. But it's pretty widespread. And I suppose it's interesting when, when you're going through the, the Bureau witness statements and so on, the people like... Uh, Lucy de Puer, uh, who was working for the Irish Republic in Germany, and Bewley, and Gavin Duffy, and so on. A lot of our diplomats seem to hold these views, and they're going out into Europe, you know, with that kind of mindset. I suppose that's interesting and also, in many ways, dispiriting, too. Well, I think you, you mentioned in the article as well that some people within the Irish government and the diplomatic service recognise that having people like Bewley could be damaging to Irish interests in the long run, particularly interacting with Jews. Yeah, although the way I've seen it expressed is not really because Bewley's views are bad. It's that if we send him to Berlin, where there's lots of Jews, then it'll be counterproductive. So let's send him somewhere else where there's fewer or where there's, there's more anti-Semitism, so he'll fit right in, if you know what I mean there's less kind of denunciations of his anti-Semitism than there is kind of tactical awareness that this isn't always going to go down too well. With anti-Semites, there tends to be an exaggeration of Jewish power. So there isn't any state in Europe where the Jews are dominant. In fact, there's lots of places in Europe where the Jews are, are downtrodden and discriminated against and are poor. But the people who are anti-Semitic tend to believe that the Jews are the dominating force everywhere. So people like Count Plunkett, for example, when he writes to De Valera, you know, he, he presents a picture of Europe in which the Jews control the whole continent, which is just not, you know, I'm not making a politically correct point by saying that that is not the case in 1920. And in fact, you've got parts of Europe in which the Jews are among the poorest and least powerful people in the continent. But nevertheless, anti-Semites tend to take a particular group or individual and hold them up as an example of how the Jews are, are all powerful. Well, I remember hearing an interview with Gerald Goldberg, who went on to become the Lord Mayor of Cork, discussing his university days and getting verbally abused and insulted at 
debates and lectures by members of the blue shirts. So it seems to be a case that wasn't just rhetorical or just for their own audiences. They were willing to insult directly Jews within Ireland. Yeah, I mean, it's a wider question again. I mean, if you go through the Dáil debates, for example, and again, we've got all this access that we can look at this stuff online and so on. You don't really have vigorous defences of Jews against anti-Semitism when anti-Semitic views are expressed in the Dáil. Most notoriously, 1943, Oliver J. Flanagan, who's at the time a monetary reform TD, very influenced by Altrini Ashery. He makes a speech praising Hitler. Now, that's a notorious speech, but what's very interesting is that not one TD contradicts him. You know, probably a lot of them don't agree with him, but they just don't say anything about it. In 1934, De Valera makes a speech in reaction to the insinuation that he's Jewish, in which he argues that he's not Jewish. And even though he has nothing against the Jews, he then kind of suggests that they've faced persecution historically because they killed Christ. You know, so there's relatively little. There is one case, Jim Larkin, 1944, classic Larkin because he gets the facts wrong, but he's coming from a good place. Oliver J. Flanagan again says, you know, we didn't have the Jews or the Freemasons in 1916 when, when we were fighting for freedom. And Larkin roars at him. That's not true. The first man to die was a Jew. And this is a belief, which is, you know, um, unfortunately untrue in some ways, that a guy called Arnold Weeks, who was an English volunteer who died in Easter week, had been Jewish. Now, that wasn't really true, but Larkin is essentially trying to contradict Flanagan by saying, no, that's not true. The Jews did fight. Again, Larkin's own politics in that area, again, are a mess of contradictions, but he at least does try to argue back. Late 40s, Bob Briscoe is speaking about probably the establishment of the State of Israel. And James Dillon of Fine Gael makes a lot of insinuations, very loaded remarks about the treasure coming into this country and all the rest of it, which are laced with anti-Semitism, you know. So it, it is a prevalent prejudice which isn't really challenged a lot of the time. Um, and I think other people, Sean Gannon, I think, is, has done work on this, where within, you know, you've got individuals within the Catholic Church, like Frank Duff of the Legion of Mary, who, who try to set up ecumenical groups that do actually challenge anti-Semitism. And they tend to get slapped down by the church itself or by people within the Catholic Church who think that you don't have to go that far in terms of your understanding of these people. So, you know, politically, socially, economically, you have a prejudice that's widely accepted. It's part of a European and international, like global, phenomenon which certainly in retrospect you can see in 18 in 1918 1990 1920 a view becoming widespread particularly that which links the jews to bolshevism which by the 1940s is part of the backdrop to you know an attempted genocide of of jewish people in europe yeah i mean it's interesting what you said before brian that you know anti-semitism in a way has nothing to do with actual jews and I had the fortune or misfortune to read a lot of um, writing by people who supported O'Duffy and the Irishman who went off to the Spanish Civil War. Uh, and, you know, like the Jews seem to represent, you know, something that's other, that's like undermining Christian civilization, that's bringing in unclean. There's this call, always this talk about cleanliness versus filth and stuff like this. But it's really, it's a mental world rather than about actual Jews in a lot of cases. 
Yeah, I mean, I think certainly in Ireland, a lot of people who held anti-Semitic views or who even cheered some of these speeches at blue shirt rallies would have had no interaction with Jews. Although there would have been more interaction, I think, in that era than there is today in terms of meeting actual Jewish people, um, strangely enough, because it, it was a more prominent community, certainly in Dublin. And, and there's a lot of oral history and, and discussion about that community and, and, and about its place in Dublin that, that needs to be brought out. But I suppose, yes, in terms of, of anti-Semitism, the Jew is an idea. And it's why you can have someone like Henry Ford, who's one, who is actually one of the most powerful men in the world, fabulously wealthy industrialist, sets up you know, his first Irish factory in 1917, first multinational probably to, to, to come here, who's a really powerful man. And yet he can believe that he's only a puppet, that these, you know, corner store owners and peddlers and garment workers in Brooklyn are really running America and he's not, you know? And he can convince people that on the one hand, the Jews control all the banks and all the money. And on the other hand, they're all communists as well. And it's that versatility and flexibility of anti-Semitism that, that made it such a potent prejudice and one that could be believed by people who, you know, never had much interactions with Jewish people themselves. Now, that's not to say, you know, you live in the real world and on a day-to-day -day level, people will have interactions and people will have negative interactions with Jewish people too. It doesn't mean that then they should believe they're behind a huge conspiracy, but, you know, in real life, people roll up against each other. And in diaspora communities in Britain and particularly in America, there's a whole history of Irish-Jewish antagonism as well as cooperation. But the point is that you don't need to even have that for people to believe these conspiracies. The conspiracy itself becomes self-evident and, you know, reinforces itself. Because when you contradict it, the point about conspiracies is that you're part of the conspiracy. You know, it cannot, it can never be disproven. It can only be reinforced. That's the, the tragedy of it. Well, Brian, thank you very much. That was a really interesting discussion. That was Dr. Brian Hanley. And we were talking about his latest article, which you can find in Irish Historical Studies. It's The Irish and the Jews Have a Great Deal in Common, Irish Republicanism, Anti-Semitism and the Post-War World. You can listen to this or any previous episodes to show on our website, irishhistoryshow.ie. You can follow us on Twitter at Irish History Pod or on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash the Irish History Show. And if you get a chance, please take a moment to rate and review the show on iTunes, Spotify, or whichever platform you get your podcasts on. It really does help us. So until next time, my name is Carl Brennan, and on behalf of my co-presenter, John Dorney, thank you very much for listening. Radio.ie hosts the Irish History Show podcast because history matters. Radio turns 100 years young this year. Radio's history is powered by Radio Archives. For radio archiving solutions from people passionate about radio, visit radio.ie.